sometimes in life you get thrown into a situation where you don't know what to do, where it's not always clear what to do or what the right thing to do is. I remember uh, I was 18, just graduated from high school, and uh, I thought a great summer job would be to, to work on fires, camp, uh, not campfires, huh? Campfires that got out of control, right? Lightning strikes, forest fires. Again, it looks like this this year may be a good year if you're interested in doing that. And so I went and I trained and did all the physical stuff and got my, uh, I think they call it a pink card, and went out. I got my first job, and I remember I showed up at the BLM the first day ready to go. I thought I was going to be like out digging trenches and, you know, dirty, hot, sweaty. They handed me a keys to a to a brand new suburban, air-conditioned suburban, said, you're going to be ferrying smoke jumpers back and forth. So for the first day or two, that's what I got to do. But the very first night, when I showed up on the job, I went up and I drove up into the book cliffs into Bunniger Canyon, and that's where this big fire was at the time. And I got there, and I reported for duty, and the, the camp boss, the fire boss, Cliff, he looks at me and goes, okay, here's your job. Uh, all of us are going to sleep. You're going to watch that ridge right there, and you can see, like, the flames kind of popping up here and there. It was creepy, eerie, if you've ever been, like, really close to a a forest fire. It's really, really strange and eerie, right? So he said, you're going to watch those flames. And if it starts coming back down over the ridge towards camp, wake us up. And so I'm an 18-year-old kid, and I'm start sitting there trying to stay awake all night, right, first off. And then I'm watching it, and the wind would kick up, and I'd see the flames start to kick up, and, and I'd see, like, you know, another tree catch up on the ridge. I'm like, what do I do? And all night, I'm just terrified watching, like, is the fire coming down? Should I wake him up? Don't wake him up. I just, because you don't want to wake up your boss if it's nothing, right? But also, you don't want to be the one responsible for the fire coming down. And, um, <laughs> and oh, you know, everybody's down there sleeping. So it was, it was kind of scary, right? But we all made it. Thankfully, the sun came up, and I collapsed on a camping mat and slept for a few hours in the broad daylight uh, and we survived. But in that situation, I didn't know what to do. I was in a situation I had never prepared for. I didn't really have any training in. And what's interesting is you look at the book of Esther and this story that's about we're about to be in, introduced to in chapter 2, that's exactly the situation that Esther and Mordecai are going to find themselves in. In a situation where, where it's not always really super clear what the right thing is to do is, and they're going to be, have to do their best in that situation. Now, just to catch you up on the history, if you missed it last week, chapter one, we see this, this huge war council in, in 489 BC, King Xerxes the Great, uh, he takes the throne of Persia, and he's got you know, we don't know too much about him except for, uh, well, we know quite a bit from history, but we don't know too much about what he looked like because there's only a few ancient reliefs left. But apparently, he had an epic hipster beard. And so I think uh, you hipsters are doing a good job out there uh, modeling the great Xerxes. So anyway, um, Xerxes the Great. Now, he was he was the king. They called him the king of kings. He was the emperor over a huge empire, the Persian Empire. It stretched from Egypt all the way to the, to, to the edge of Greece, 
on, uh, on the European side all the way over to India. I think we have a slide that shows you how big the Persian Empire was. It was a massive empire that, that stretched across most of the civilized world at that time. Now, Xerxes' father, Darius, who you know from the Daniel in the lion's den account, um, Xerxes' father, he, he decided he was going to go conquer Greece. And he was embarrassed and defeated a number of years before this at a famous battle. Let's see if anybody remembers your history. What was that battle called? Close. We're going to get to that one in a minute. Anybody ever run a marathon? No? Anybody ever run a half marathon? Oh, we got one out there. Okay, good job. Half marathons, quite a few of you. Well done. Well done. Well, here's where you get the word marathon, in case you didn't know that, is uh, at this battle, King Darius, he's, he's trying to attack and overcome Greece. And there was a certain spot where, um, where the Greeks actually held him off in, the, in a town called Marathon. And legend has it that the, there was a runner that came to bring news of the invading army and the fact that they had conquered or they were conquering the Greeks. And he ran 26 miles or 26.1, right? Because it's kilometers. He, he ran 26 miles all the way from Marathon to Athens, where he got the words out uh, about the Persians and then collapsed dead. And some of you are like, I identify with that feeling, right? Maybe that's why we didn't have so many, uh, you know, like full completion marathon runners here. They collapsed dead. I don't know. Um, no, and so, so that's where the word marathon comes from. And uh, so if you want to run it, now you know why you're running it. Um, but anyway, so, so here's what's happening in, in chapter one, is Xerxes holds this 180-day banquet war council. He displays the incredible vast wealth of the, at the, of the empire, and it's all to work up public emotion and support for another war campaign over into Greece. And at the very end of it, there's a seven-day drunken festival. And during this drunken festival, at the end of this festival, he calls his wife, Queen Vashti. And Persian law at this time did not allow this, did not allow um, the queen to be seen like this in front of other um, men. But he calls Vashti over, and uh, commentators speculate that when it says to... to um, show herself in her crown. That may have been all she was showing herself in. Basically, this is a lustful, drunken thing where he calls her probably to dance in front of all his drunk, powerful friends. Awful situation, awful scene. She tells him to go take a hike. And so he responds by listening to the counsel of the people around him and makes a decree that he sends across the whole empire. See if you like this uh, this dude. Basically, he says, to all women in the empire, you will respect your man. He tries to tell his queen, thou shalt respect me. That's the decree, right? How well do you think that worked? Yeah, not really well, right? How many of you men, Father's Day, you're the king of your castle, right? Yeah, right. I've tried to make some decrees. I told you about the decree I made a number of months ago when my family begged me to get a new cat, right? that the cat would be an outdoor cat. Well, my kids, I want to show you how well that's going for me. Uh, my kids got me a Father's Day present. And let's see what we've got here. You can see it on the screen, too. So a little cat eating a mouse and then a nice mug. So 
So I'll tell you how my decree is working out. Now my decree looks like this. Honey, can you please just scoot the cat over so I have room on my side of the bed? <laughs> so anyway, he makes this crazy decree, right? And um, this guy is just... Um, the point behind all this, is, as we saw in chapter one, is this guy has the ultimate authority, the power, and he makes decisions that are rash when he's not in his right mind. Very dangerous guy. And that's why the author is building this up like this, because the situ he's going to show us the situation that Esther is going to enter into, right? Now, we're going to start chapter two in just a second. It's going to say later. And here's what you're going to see during the intervening years, because we're going to pick up and about four years go by in the story. And during the intervening years, King Xerxes was off fighting another disastrous war with Greece. He would be humiliated, just humiliated and defeated. And his treasuries would be uh, depleted. He would be discredited in the eyes of his subjects during this time. In fact, you probably know, front row, the battle of Thermopylae. That's right. Anybody seen the movie 300? That's where it comes from. Although Xerxes seems to have a much more epic hipster beard than he did on that movie um, where he's like this bald, muscly guy. Um, so anyway, um, so Thermopylae, you know this because this was a site where 300 Spartans and their allies held off the masses of Persians that were invading. Someone, someone like uh, somewhat where like 10 to 40 times the army. And a lot of uh, a guy named Leonidas, the, the Greek commander. In fact, it's interesting because they came in, and before they even invaded, they came in, they demanded, hey, look how powerful we are. Our army's huge. You've got 7,000. We've got 10 to 40 times as much, like tens of thousands. Just, why don't you just lay down your arms? And you know his quote? Come and take them. I think I've seen that on some bumper stickers around Western Colorado. <laughs> Seems a popular sentiment. <laughs> what was that? She knows the, the Latin. Greek? Greek. Yes. She doesn't know, but she knows it. And I'm not going to try to repeat it because I don't, I don't speak Greek. And so it was at that Battle of Thermopylae that, that they held off 300 plus a few others. Uh, allies held off this invading force. Um, and allowed the Greeks to regroup and later then defeat Xerxes at a battle about a year later. And so this is four years later where we pick up the story. And what's interesting about this is as you read the history books, I mean, you've heard about those. How many remember now? Oh, yeah, I heard about that and I'm in grade school or high school or junior high, right? Some of you did or not. You don't remember anything you learned in school or you're not awake or your eyes are glazed over. He's like, when is he ever going to stop talking about history? I don't know, one of the three. But what's interesting is while the lens of history focuses on this battle, God's story during this time is focused behind the scenes on a much smaller story that's playing itself out. And that's on the survival of the line of the Messiah. That from the perspective of the world, in this tiny little dusty corner now of the Persian Empire... There's this little remnant that's trying to rebuild the temple and this little remnant that's trying to reestablish a hold in the land for, to be the place where the Messiah will come from. And there's going to be an incredible threat against that. And in God's eyes, that's the epicenter of the story. It may not be on the world pages and what everybody was focusing on. No, they were focusing on, you know, this battle and this defeat and all this. But God's story is focusing on the things behind the scene. And I think that is so significant for our lives.
If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, why don't you turn to Esther chapter 2. Now I'm going to work through this chapter, part of this chapter, and uh, comment a little bit as we go through, and then hopefully tie this crazy story to our lives today. Verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and, and, and what he had decreed about her. And then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Verse 3, let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. So here's what's happening here. Bachelor Susa style. Anybody watch The Bachelor out there? No, you're not willing to admit anything in church. I know you do, some of you. Come on. Okay, we have a few. Yeah. So this is a giant beauty popularity contest, right? But very different. Instead of like, you know, a couple dozen uh, contestants, we're talking about hundreds of contestants. And they go to all the surrounding areas. They're going to go around and pick the prettiest girls and, and bring them in to this king. Again, he's going to take the advice of a bunch of his counselors. Number one, he, he sends a decree out to all the women, um, basically to saying, Respect your husbands, manage the king of the castle, right? Um, and now he's going to send another decree out where he sends people out to, to pick all the most beautiful women from the whole province and bring them in. They probably did not have a choice in the matter. Bachelor, Susa style. Verse 5. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of the exiles. So, so right away, he connects this story because he wants us to be thinking about the exile of the people. So a little, about 100 years before this, just over 100 years before this, King Nebuchadnezzar had come in, destroyed, burnt, destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, and hauled off everyone who was anyone into exile in Babylon. And now, now the Medes and the Persians have taken over and conquered the Babylonians. And so he's reminding us the people of God are in exile. At this point, there's a small remnant, like I said, back in the land struggling but most of the people of God are still in exile away from the land. Verse 7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who is also known as Esther, so you have a Jewish name and you have a Persian name, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Verse 8, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. Now, number one, all the dudes that worked in the giant bachelor palace hotel were eunuchs for obvious reasons, right? How'd you like to sign up for that job, guys? Nope, don't think so. 
But all these guys that work there, uh, and so there's this huge crowd of, of women, and, and, and it's the harem of the king. And we can barely wrap our minds around this in modern times. It just seems so over the top, so crazy, right? Just imagine this. So life completely, in a moment, shifts for, for Esther. And I think she's terrified. I think in that moment, it's like, oh, my goodness. All of a sudden, these people walk into your village. They're from the king. Bring out all your most beautiful women. You, 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 you. And you don't have a choice in the matter. Now, we're not told that explicitly, but if you understand the absolute power of the kings at that time and throughout most of history, that's kind of how it went, right? The kings are the one. You've heard the phrase, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And this king was used to getting whatever he wanted. And so as these, as these heralds and these guys would roll into these villages, all these women, guess what? Pack up, head on out. You're going to be in the king's harem. What do you do? I think she's ter- terrified. What do you do when life happens, when life throws you a left turn? I bet she didn't grow up wanting to be in the king's harem. That's not what you dream of as a little girl. She's already an orphan girl, right? And then Mordecai, um, we, we get this great picture of just this kind older guy that, that adopts her as his own daughter and treats her like he'd treat his own daughter, cares for her. And all of a sudden, he's thrown in this situation, too, of like, oh, my goodness, what do I do? This isn't what I wanted for, for, my, for my daughter, for my adopted daughter. History tells us, the historian Josephus tells us that Xerxes had 400 concubines. And if that seems a little excessive to you, just remember the Bible tells us that King Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. Genius move, right, from the smartest guy in the world. In fact, this was the reason why they're in this mess in exile to begin with, is because Solomon abandons God's word all the way back in, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and that tells the kings to be careful of this, right? God warns kings through prophets, don't do this. And Solomon's like, I'm smart, I'm powerful, I'm the wisest guy, I can do it, but he can't. And his heart is drawn away by his many foreign wives, and he begins to lead the nation into idolatry, and personally, he worships other gods at the end of his life. Tragic story. This compounds through wicked kings that would follow his example after him and go much further, and that's why they're in exile at this point. And this king that Esther is thrown into the the harem of, um, he's not a good guy. In fact, um, Herodotus, the Greek historian, tells us that that after the military defeat, um, Xerxes led a life of sensual indulgence. In fact, he, he would sleep around with the wives of some of his officers, and, and that like created an anger that would lead to his assassination in 465 B.C. And so Esther, I think, is terrified. This isn't a guy you mess with. This isn't a guy you want to be around. Maybe some of these girls jumped at the chance to be on The Bachelor, Seuss's style. But if I had to guess... I think Esther isn't one of them. I think she's terrified. 
So they bring her to the, the king's chief eunuch who's taking care of the harem. Now God's already at work in the midst of this, in the midst of her fear, in the midst of her not knowing what to do. Verse 9, she pleased him and won his favor. And immediately he provided her, this is the eunuch, with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. So he's like, wow, God's on the move, right? God's, God's positioning her to become a person in a place of influence. And so all of a sudden, we see him moving behind the scenes. And she gets the, you know, the, the vitamin shakes and the good stuff, you know, the stuff that, that you go to parties for and pay way too much money for, that kind of stuff. She drinks all that. I mean, she's getting the best treatments, the beauty treatments, all of it. Verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. I think this is so significant and so interesting. Because you remember how I told you, like, on that first day of the fire crew, um, up all night, wondering, what should I do? Should I wake him up? Should I, should I have not? How many of you have had a situation, something like that in your life, where you're like, I don't know. It's not real clear. She's in a situation where all of a sudden, probably completely against her will, she has to go be in the king's harem. What do you do? What do you do? And already we see signs of anti-Semitism that was around during the time. And so Mordecai, for whatever reason, thinks it's best that she conceal her identity. And he gives this advice to her, and this is exactly what she does. And it's interesting as you go back and read the commentaries. Because at this point, like the ancient Jewish commentators are like, what? how does this work? Why didn't he run away with her to help her escape this? Because according to Jewish law, what's about ready to happen is not okay. She's about to lose her virginity with a Persian pagan king. It's about what's ready to happen. Not okay. And so the commentators are like, what's happening? What's going on here? This is not an okay story. Why didn't she run away? Why wouldn't she give her life instead? And, and, you know, you look back at the situation, and it's like, I don't know. I don't know. And see, it's so interesting, I think, that this is the one book in the Bible that does not mention the, the name of God. And, and a translation called the Septuagint, the Greek translation, um, actually, as they translated into Greek a couple hundred years later, they actually add a lot more uh, of God's name and God's presence and activity into it. It's, it's fascinating. But in, this, in the ancient original Hebrew text, you don't see that. And I think it's so amazing because I think there's something in here that for us, this is life. Sometimes you are in a situation where you're not sure what is the right thing to do, where it's not really clear, where somebody's arguing one way and the other, and you're like, I just don't get it, right? And you seek God, and you do your best, and, and sometimes you have to make a snap decision. Anybody ever made a snap decision that you looked up back on and went, I wish I made that differently? Probably all of us. That's life. And that's the point that the author of the book of Esther is trying to communicate to us. Meanwhile, what we, what we see is God is at work in an incredible way behind the scenes. 
But she doesn't know that right here. All she knows is there's this crazy situation. What do I do? And Mordecai's like, um, better conceal your identity. And so she does. So she would be eating all the, the, the food that, you know, wasn't allowed by the Torah. We don't even know really if, if her and Mordecai were very active. We know they, we, we put two and two together and know they believed in God because Esther calls the nation to fast a little while later, right? But we don't know how observant they were, how active their faith was. All we know in that situation, they made a snap decision. And he's going out every day and he's checking on her. Because, man, that's the last thing you want for your little girl. But what can you do? And he has to send messages back and forth because once you're in the harem, that's how you got to communicate. You can't, like, go mingle in the public anymore. So they're sending messages back and forth. And, and the, the cool thing about Mordecai to me, this is great. This chapter landed on Father's Day. Is he shows such an amazing heart. For this girl who he's adopted, who's not even, you know, his biological daughter. And yet he cares for her as he would for his biological daughter. He doesn't just write her off. He doesn't like, as soon as, he doesn't just check out, you know, when she leaves the house and is now in the harem. He's like, well, there's nothing I can do. No, he, he like goes there. He's there every day. He's trying to get news for her. He cares about her genuinely. And this is such a great point because I think we live in an age of fatherlessness. An age where so many dads are either checked out or so many dads, um, so many single parent families around the nation and the inner cities and places in our city just don't have a father figure in their life that's worth anything. And this, we've got people serving in our church that, you know, are very active in fostering and adoption and on the board of CASA and working in different areas that are really actively involved in serving in our community and being father figures. And, you know, maybe God's calling some of you guys to get involved in that way, to get involved in partners, to, to reach out to kids that maybe have no association with church, but you could be a father figure in their life. You could be somebody that loves them and cares for them, and points them to Jesus, and points them, helps them go the direction that God would have for them and, and succeed in life, right? Maybe God's calling some of you to do that. I love this, uh, this youth pastor, Richard Ross, Dr. Richard Ross. He was a youth pastor into his, I think, 50s or even 60s, which some of you are like, well, that's crazy. No, he led leaders, and he, he, he makes this point. I, I saw him speak at this D6, Deuteronomy 6 convention, about family discipleship. And he said, um, basically, the most important thing, this is such a good thing, because you see this in Mordecai, he, he maintains a connection, a heart connection with Esther, maintains influence in her life. You know, parenting doesn't end when, when your kids turn 18 and move out, or 30 and move out, I don't know. Different day, different age, right? Parenting doesn't end. And one of the most important things Dr. Richard Ross says, if you want to have influence, ongoing influence in the life of your kids, is to maintain a heart connection with your child. It's the most important thing you can do. So often we, fo we focus just on behavior modification. Man, I'm guilty of this sometimes, and I have to remember this. Oh, yeah, it's about maintaining a heart connection. That's actually the most important thing because I want to maintain influence in my child's life for years. Another pastor, uh, famous pastor, says later is longer. You're going to have a lot longer with your kids after they're out of your house 
Lord willing, than when they're in it. Such a good thing to remember, such an important thing. And Mordecai is such an amazing father figure to Esther. He stays engaged. Verse 12. Before a young woman's turn came in to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments. It's a long bachelor season. Uh, prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go into the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. So all this wealth, all these fancy gowns, all this stuff, when you turn with us to go into the king, you could take any of that. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. So this is why I think that probably most of these women never wanted to be part of the king's harem. This is... This is like The Bachelor, but with no nationwide fame afterwards. No chance like, oh, you were runner-up. Now you get to go be The Bachelorette. You know, your, your YouTube channel and Instagram is going to take off. You're going to end up making millions because of this. No, no, no. No, actually, it, it, you're going to go, and if you're not the one chosen, you're going to go, um, you're going to go out and you're going to go into the harem, to the, and you're going to live for the rest of your life with the under other 300-some bachelorette contestants who you probably hate. Come on, you've watched it, right? They all hate each other. For the rest of your life. And unless the king, I mean, if the king had too much to drink that night and can't remember your name, sorry, you, you may never see the king again in your life. You're going to live out your life childless, alone, and you can't ever see your family again. Now, you've got some luxury, but that's the circumstance here. Not exactly the fairy tale kind of Sunday school flannel graph version of the story, right? But this is the reality. This is what Esther's facing. Verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem suggested, again, listening to wise advice. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Teba, in the 70th year of his reign. Once again, taken. Don't know that she had anything, any choice in the matter. Verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So she's chosen. She wins. And what we see here is she's elevated to the status of queen. But this wasn't really her doing. This was God's hands behind the scene. And like I said, as the lens of history focuses on these big battles and all the rich and famous people and all that, and it still does today, the primary thing God is doing is he's moving and interweaving his story with that story to preserve the line of Jesus, his Messiah. Because there's going to be a great threat that comes upon this nation. 
and it won't succeed. Spoiler alert, sorry. Book's been out a while, so you should read it. So how does this apply to our life? It's kind of crazy because this is part of the hard part about preaching Esther. Is it's like, how many dads want to hold this up as the great example for your daughter? Man, you're real pretty. Here's what, here's what you do. Go use your body to get ahead. No. Why don't you conceal your faith? Don't think that's a great idea either, right? So how does this apply to us? How does this apply to us? I think the biggest application is this, that we can all identify with being in a situation where life throws you a left turn and you're not exactly sure what to do in that situation. Where the thing, the way ahead isn't always crystal clear. Where you pray and maybe you don't hear anything. Where you're asking God to lead you and you don't get a strong sense of where he's leading you. Where you're confused, right? Or where you find yourself in a situation that you're terrified and you're not sure how it's going to work out. And I think the beauty of this story is that the whole fact that God is working in the midst of all that. That his hand is on it. That he's not out of control. That it's you're not out of control. Well, you may be, but he's not. That even though you may have made some, some tragic decisions in the past, who knows if Esther regretted the fact of all this, that Mordecai was like, man, I just, I was scared. I would have taken her. I would have ran back to the exiles in Judea. I would have gotten out of here. They would have never found us on the road. As soon as I saw those guys coming into town, I should have taken off. I heard a rumor. We don't know. But I think there's probably some regret, right? And you've got a situation or situations in your life that you regret, that you wish, you, you made a decision based on fear and you wish you could go back and change that. You made a decision based on the pressure of the moment. You got pressured into something in a relationship that you would just give anything to go back and change, but you were scared of being lonely. And here's what I want to say. Well, I do not believe at all that God caused the sin or God caused the situation to come into your life, I believe God is working through the situation. We're told in the scripture, God doesn't tempt you. That's not the heart and the character of our Father. He doesn't tempt you. We're tempted by our own desires. We're tempted by our own fears. We're tempted by our own things, right? And yet, God is at work behind the scenes. And the beauty of this, and the Apostle Paul talks about this, is this, he says this in Romans 8, 28. This is one of those great coffee cup mugs, better than crazy cat guy. Although I'm going to hold that mug with pride. (laughs) Unless it accidentally breaks. All right. The Apostle Paul. We know that all, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And actually, I really like the NIV translation on this because I think it conveys the heart. It doesn't mean that every situation in your life is good or that you understand or where that left turn comes that, man, that's just something you're like, woohoo, 
pain, struggle, suffering, confusion. No. But it means that you can be assured that God, even in the midst of your confusion and your pain, he is still working to accomplish something good. That he's going to use that for something good. That he's going to, he's, that, that situation is somehow going to fit into his big plan. And that's good news because I'm telling you now that the, the message isn't that life is going to be good all the time. That God's going to turn it around and make your life good. Now, if you read Hebrews 11, there's a bunch of great heroes of the faith. And then the second half of it lists a bunch of the other great heroes of the faith that things didn't turn out so well. They got sawed in two and, you know, tortured, lived in caves in the desert. So life may not go always well in this life. But the beauty of this message is when you look at life in, in the eternal perspective, and I'm saying, I'm telling you, the only way to make sense of life is if you have an eternal perspective. Because we live in a fallen, sinful world where lousy stuff happens. It's just the fabric of the world we live in. And the only way to make sense of it is in an eternal context where you realize, God, you're at work, and somehow I may never even understand the situation in this lifetime, but somehow... Somehow, I think you're going to work this out in your greater plan and purpose. I'm going to trust you in that, and I'm going to keep walking. What do you do? What do you do? You keep walking, right? You do the, the thing that you think and know is right to do. You pray and seek the Lord. How many of you, um, you look back, and there's circumstances in your life that only make sense five or ten years down the road? Yeah, a bunch of us, right? You don't see them going through them. But sometimes, five or 10 or 20 years down the road, you look back and go, oh, that's what God was doing. But we don't always get that luxury. Sometimes it is like, I don't actually know what that was all about. That's the, the reality of life in a fallen world. But the promise is in that and through that, he's working for the good of his people. That you have an eternal hope. That you, if, if you follow him in your life, um, I think following Jesus is the best way to live. And there's a lot better chance your life is going to go well when you, when you live the way that Jesus talks about, when you follow the Proverbs and, and the ways that we see in Scripture. But sometimes stuff just happens, right? Sometimes it just happens. How do you live your life? Well, when you find yourself in a situation where you don't know what to do, you pray, you seek God, you seek Scripture. You do what you think the right thing to do is. You get wise counsel. You make a decision. Like Mordecai, you stay engaged and committed. You don't just check out. You don't let fear rule you. That's something when push comes to shove, Esther is going to make the right choice and not let fear rule her. How do you live? Now, I think there might be times, you know, maybe in a class where, where you don't want to just stand up in front of everybody, if you're in college or high school, right, and advertise, I don't believe you, professor. Now, some of you, you've got that personality, right? What do you do when the professor asks, any Christians in the room? Yeah, you raise your hand. You don't hide it. You don't deny it. What if it costs you? Well, then it costs you. What do you do when you're in a relationship and you're pressured because you're afraid you're going to end up being lonely, but you know that the person you're in the relationship with 
Um, dating, not marriage, it's a whole different situation. There you hang on, you pray, you hang on, you pray. But you're being pressured to do things that you know go against your what, what God's called you to do. You do the right thing. You let the chips fall where they may, right? How do you live? Well, Paul, um, or Jesus said, be as wise as serpents, as innocent as doves. You got to be shrewd the way you live in a world that's fallen. What do you do when you're in, in a group and you're just so scared? Because this is a big deal, isn't it? You're so scared. Think People are going to think less of you if you say, if you speak up, if you say something. Maybe it's something sharing your faith. Maybe it's standing up for something you feel is right. It could jeopardize your reputation, your career, your standing. What do you do? Man, I'll tell you, even as a pastor, it's something that's hard. Because I get to stand up here and talk every week, pretty much. And you know what always runs back through the back of my mind? Gosh, I don't I hope I don't offend them. And yet God calls me to come up and present to you what, what I believe, what he's laid on my heart is the truth of Scripture and the truth that, that he has given Stand. And, and here's the beauty of this. The beauty of this verse, God is working for the good in everything. That even in the situation, the beauty of the gospel is this. That you have situations in your life where you are ashamed, where you wish you could go back and make a different choice, but you can't go back, can you? History only goes forward. And the beauty of the cross is Jesus provides you forgiveness and freedom from your shame. You have a father who loves you so much that he sent his only son to die for you. And it's nothing you can do to earn that love. You just embrace what he's done for you. And you know what you do when you continue to struggle with sin in your life and things? You, you thank him, and because of his forgiveness and his grace, you get up and you start over. His new, mercies are new every day, right? You get up and you start new every day. Instead of running away from him, you run towards him. When you blow it, you run towards him. You embrace the fact that he loves you and forgives you. So you're saved by grace. You're sanctified by his grace. Sanctified. You're made his Holy Spirit. It's a process of his spirit working that out in you. And you got to cooperate with it. But the beauty of the gospel is you have freedom from shame. Freedom in your life. Would you stand? Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. Lord, as we look at this um, crazy, interesting story from 2,500 years ago, Lord, we thank you that you are so faithful. We thank you that even as we look back at history, you've been working behind the scenes. We thank you for the cross. If there's anybody in the room or joining us online that you have not yet trusted Jesus for the first time, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Why don't you just pray a prayer like this after me? Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. I cannot make it to God on my own. I believe you are the Son of God that you died and rose again for me. I want to place my trust in you. I confess my sin. I want to turn from that and live a life that honors you. Save me, forgive me, 
welcome me into your family. Lord, for all my other friends that are in various situations, I pray you would give them the courage to do what they know is right. And when they're in a situation that they don't know what to do, that you would give them wisdom and insight, Lord. And for those struggling because of things in their past they wish they could go back and redo, would they feel the overwhelming sense of your grace and your peace and your forgiveness in their life? Would they just feel what you've done for them? They're clean. They're forgiven. Be with us. Bless these friends, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.